Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of our 7 Investing podcast video, whatever we might call this piece of content. I'm 7 Investing founder and CEO, Simon Erickson, joined by my 7 Investing colleague, lead advisor, Steve Symington. Steve, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm fantastic. Uh, it's Friday, and uh, I'm only sad that the trading weekends, uh, but uh, I enjoy the weekends, of course. <laughs> Well, we've got some special guests with us this afternoon, actually. Spence Randall and Michael Tama are from CryptoEQ, who we've just partnered with, with Seven Investing. Uh, We've done that because we kept getting a lot of questions about cryptocurrencies. People saying, what is Bitcoin worth? What do you think of Bitcoin? Should I be buying Bitcoin? And Steve, we found that we didn't really have great answers to those questions. And so we went out and we're looking for a partner, which we found with CryptoEQ, that could really was doing some great, objective, thorough research into cryptocurrencies. I've really enjoyed reading their core reports and getting much more of an understanding of this space. And so first and foremost, uh, Spence and, and Mike, thanks for kind of joining us in this journey to help investors with 7investing. Yeah, thanks for having us on, Simon. And we're excited to be embarking on this, this partnership with you guys. With 7investing, you're in the stock market, watching the stock market 24-7. And you know, Crypto EQ, we are watching crypto 24-7. So we've got these two teams that have been building in parallel. And now we're coming together to see our two industries really collide in a good way. Right? And there's, there's this interesting intersection that's happening between equities and crypto. And so you know, in our specialization in both industries coming together, I think it's a really unique value proposition for the audience. And uh, I haven't seen any content like this. Uh, out there and I consume content every day. So I'm excited to do this with y'all. Yes. And to clarify a little more what what Spence is mentioning there, what we're going to do going forward is on a monthly basis, have calls with both seven investing representing the equity side of recent developments that are taking place out there. And then Spence and Mike representing the cryptocurrency side of the same developments and kind of pull them together into giving investors a comprehensive look at what this means and what we should do about it. I'm really excited about this. We're gonna be publishing the video of this call to Seven Investing. And then there's going to be a written piece, a content piece that's available for CryptoEQ members. If you are interested in that, that's cryptoeq.io is their website. I highly recommend checking out their subscription as well. But to kick this off, let me start with the first story that is very newsworthy right now which is that Tesla has just announced that they're going to be purchasing $1.5 billion worth of Bitcoin and also be accepting it for transactions with Tesla in the future. Steve, I'll start with you on this one because uh, Elon Musk has said that he's doing this to diversify and maximize the returns of Tesla's cash on the balance sheet. Mm-hmm. Uh, Spence and Mike, I'll get to you in a second to get the cryptocurrency perspective on this. But Steve, what's your take from an equity perspective of what's going on? This is really interesting because, uh, you know, you and I have done uh, podcasts a couple of times talking about the specific capital allocation decisions. And one of those decisions is the uh, decision to just leave um, cash in cash and and maybe not necessarily put that to work uh, as far as uh, maybe returning capital to shareholders through dividends or reinvesting in the business. Um, but this kind of throws an interesting wrench in the thought uh, that cash can you know sit there idle. And uh, rather than just leaving it in cash, you know, they're taking a, a portion of what they have and putting it in Bitcoin, uh, which is a, a really just a really interesting decision. I mean, and Keeping in mind, you know, we're looking at Tesla's market cap 
just short of 800 billion. Um, you know, so it's not like Tesla is betting the farm on this, but uh, it, it is, um, it, it was cool to kind of watch it all unfold and, and similar to uh, what MicroStrategy has done in purchasing uh, Bitcoin for part of their balance sheet. And I think it was kind of birthed out of a uh, conversation Elon Musk and uh, MicroStrategy CEO had on Twitter uh, several weeks ago. Uh, where he was saying, are, are such large transactions even possible? And, uh, and the MicroStrategy CEO re- responded and said, uh, yes, we just bought $1.3 billion in Bitcoin over the last several weeks. I'd be happy to share my playbook offline. Sure enough, here we are a few weeks later, and uh, this is what happened. But uh, you know, maybe we add sort of the sixth uh, capital allocation decision uh, to those primary ways that you can you can put money to work and build the value of your business and diversify your balance sheet. So kind of cool to watch and uh, should be really interesting to watch other companies potentially uh, pile on later on, but kind of an early adopter in that stage. I think that that is really interesting what MicroStrategy did, you know, like, like you mentioned, Steve, beginning last summer, MicroStrategy at first put $425 million into buying Bitcoin, put on the balance sheet. It went from cash to being a long-term investment increased quite a bit in value over those those next eight months uh, versus where it is today. And so that that created a lot of value for shareholders, right? And we see MicroStrategy nine months ago was trading at $118 a share. It's now over $1,000 a share as people are saying, hey, what an innovative move. What a creative way for somebody to get out ahead of this. Uh, Mike, you and Spence, I'd like to bring this to you next because this is kind of like Steve said, a big a big capital allocation decision. What does it mean that corporations are now actually buying Bitcoin to put on their balance sheet? Yeah, well, first I I need to start off by plugging the value of the content we did a few months ago. You actually asked me, do I think Elon's gonna allocate to Bitcoin? And my, like kind of an almost an exact quote, I think I said something like, well, Saylor and and Elon both really like Twitter. They're kind of in orbit, right? He may do it. And then sure (laughs) enough, right, here we are. So. I think of um, this this new kind of chapter that we're seeing in Bitcoin adoption is there's a new arc of uh, persona that's adopting Bitcoin. And, you know, the reason Bitcoin makes sense for Elon and Saylor and many other CEOs um, is a similar reason to why it made sense for a lot of early adopters like Mike and I. Um, so when you think about why, uh, you know, Mike and I wanted to allocate cash to Bitcoin as a, as a retail investor and trader way back when, Right, it's it's a similar thought process on a much much bigger scale. So I think we're looking at uh, another arc of adoption uh, as we you know continue to charge ahead to mass adoption of cryptocurrencies. So that, that's kind of my general take on on this trend that we're seeing as CEOs allocate uh, cash reserves to Bitcoin. Uh, Mike, how, what do how you about think it, Mike? Of- yeah, what do you think? Yeah, so I guess it can't be understated. You know, like Spence said. Um, MicroStrategy seemed to be the first one, uh, first major player in the scene, and that was in August of last year. And um, they didn't tip, dip their toe in the water. Um, they put almost all of their cash into Bitcoin and made waves across uh, all of, you know, equities and corporations across America. And, um, you know, I was a bit skeptical at first. It seemed kind of headline grabby. Um, but uh, Michael Saylor uh, really seems to, uh, you know, he's gone on a total media tour since then and is a diehard Bitcoiner now, and he's preaching the gospel and, and recruiting others. And um, it wasn't long after that that Square, um, Jack Dorsey, they allocated uh, $50 million. And so a much smaller position, much more prudent, some may say. But, um, you know, it's always you have the first, quote unquote, crazy guy, Michael Saylor, to go all in. Um, but then as soon as you have, you know, another one follows suit, 
um, it really kind of gives some uh, credence to this idea. And you're no longer, you know, a de-risk from a reputational standpoint. And um, we've known for a long time that Elon uh, is a crypto uh, crypto curious. He tweets about Bitcoin, Dogecoin over the years. And, um, you know, yeah. it, it was probably only a matter of time for a lot of us in the crypto community, especially after a couple of weeks ago, he, he changed his Twitter profile to uh, just say Bitcoin and Bitcoin only. <laughs> so um, this is very on brand, I think, for uh, Elon and Tesla in general. Uh, like you said, it's not, uh, I think what it equated to about eight, 10 percent of their, their cash on hand, which some still uh, find, you know, is uh, pretty big, but it's not like Tesla needed to do this. Um, or you know, in the in the SEC report filing, they said, "Hey, are we? Uh, are we're trying to de-risk some of our uh, diversifier assets and de-risk a bit?" Um, which you know is certainly true in a sense. Um, but Tesla is a narrative-driven kind of uh, stock at this point, and um, I'm sure you know purchasing Bitcoin and getting your name attached to Bitcoin doesn't hurt either. I, I do think I remember, Spence, you called it that Tesla was going to be buying. And now, Mike, you know, we've seen even other corporations mention that they might want to get into Bitcoin as well. We've seen even Apple say that they would potentially purchase up to five billion dollars worth of, of Bitcoin in the future. Do you think that we see more follow suit now that, like you mentioned, it's been de-risk and Elon's taking the first move? Right. Yeah. I, I certainly think so. Um, I don't know, um, you know, if Apple would be the next domino to fall, but um uh, as Spence said, this is kind of uh, the the dam has been broken, and um, I, I don't think Tesla will be the last one at all. So when when Tesla and Elon do something, you know, it catches the attention of others, and it just so happened to piggyback right on uh, the same weekend that Michael Saylor of Michael Micro Strategy was um, hosting a webinar, a virtual event, to teach other corporations how to add Bitcoin on their books in a compliance uh, uh, to be fully compliant and attack and and cover all your tax purposes. And so um, I, it's a little serendipitous that those lined up together. But, um, you know, I did Apple made a couple of headlines. I'm not sure if that's what we call like hopium um, in the cryptocurrency space. You know, Apple is the uh, mother of all businesses. Almost I think they have something like 200 billion in cash on hand. And so people are just praying that they would put a little bit of money into Bitcoin there. Um, there was a headline. Uh, it was just a, an opinion piece from what I saw uh, from somebody, I think maybe at the Royal Bank of Canada or something like that that said that Apple would do well to maybe drop this um, push into cars, electric cars, and just open up uh, a cryptocurrency wallet and get in the exchange business because everyone's got an Apple phone or a lot of, you know, 50% of people have an Apple phone um, and they have the app store. They could just um, pretty seamlessly uh, get into that space and the margins would be great. They would instantly have a, you know, billions upon billions of users um, and it might uh, be a quick way, quote unquote, quick and easy way to drum up some some revenue. But um, I don't know if Apple is, you know, don't know where their uh, head's at. But by no means do I think uh, Tesla was the last one. I, I think we will have a steady drip of company after company for, for months to come that are going to put some kind of position into Bitcoin. Yeah. Well said, Mike. When you look at Tesla and you look at MicroStrategy, they're the biggest allocations of cash. Uh, but I also want to highlight that uh, leadership, right? Like leadership, every persona that's going to adopt Bitcoin needs leadership. And so for executives, you know, the playbook is being written and shared by uh, Sailor and uh, now Elon. Um, and so I'd also like to highlight that uh, MicroStrategy hosted an event for thousands of executives very recently 
where they went through very transparently exactly how they allocated uh, all of this capital to Bitcoin. So, uh, you know, they walked through the, the CFO side of things, uh, the CEO's considerations, you know, compliance issues. I mean, they, they opened up the whole playbook. Uh, obviously, you know, it, it helps MicroStrategy because they, they were the first, but it also helps all of these executives that are considering onboarding to the crypto ecosystem. Um, so I, you know, I do think that we've got leadership uh, around how to do this now. Um, and, it, and I think it is a trend. Um, now, whether or not certain companies are going to participate, uh, you know, Uber's not, right, for the time being. Apple may. Right? But I think the trend, you know, thinking about the pattern that we're seeing, uh, we expect this to persist um, from our analysis. Do you think, think um, you know, you brought up Uber and that was just yesterday. Uh, they said they wouldn't buy Bitcoin Um but they would consider accepting it as payment eventually. So that was interesting. Uh, but they, they sort of said, we're going to keep our cash safe. We're not in the speculation business. Do you think they'll eventually kind of end up eating those words? Uh, it, it seems like they, they kind of frown upon that. And a lot of people on uh, FinTwit especially were, were viewing that as kind of a diss uh, on Tesla because everyone's being asked, hey, are you going to put money in Bitcoin? And he was like, uh-uh, like that's not me. And there's been so many... Um public figures that have come out, you know, and said something negative about Bitcoin and then, you know, retracted that statement later. Uh, you know, Steve, when you asked the question, I thought about a lot of the, the statements that banks made in 17 uh, mm-hmm. about Bitcoin and then how they came back and retracted those statements years later. Um, so, yeah, I, I think time, time, this will play out and, you know, even Uber, for example, may revise their position uh, down the road. Steve, to bring this back to the capital allocation piece, I mean, what Spence just mentioned about leadership is a good point, that this is now something a lot of people are unfamiliar with, but you've got the Michael Saylors and Elon that are willing to do this. Right. It's not simple. You have to get approval from the board of directors to, to invest this money into an alternative asset class, You know, take money off the balance sheet and do something that a lot of people were considering very risky. Maybe it's a tad less risky today. But you know, at the end of the day, Steve, micro strategy, even with this great allocation move is still as a business, its revenue has declined every single year for the past six years. Right. Does this move change your opinion about micro strategy? Or on top of that, do you see this from an equity investment perspective as a net positive when companies are allocating to cryptocurrencies like micro strategy did? Uh, I think, you know, it doesn't really change my opinion about MicroStrategy specifically. Uh, I think you need to have a, a promising business kind of underlying that, that, um, you know, and it's it's better to have a thriving business that is, you know, deciding to say like Tesla, um, allocate more money and diversify its balance sheet in a case like this. Uh, but it's also one of those things where these are, um, you know, some of the people who are calling these shots, like MicroStrategy CEO and uh, and Elon Musk, are kind of viewed as as these brash, bold personalities. And I think maybe what happens is uh, the decision to is what we see when we see more conservative uh, leaders start to make this move. I think that's when when we uh, it starts to become more widely acceptable because right now nobody was terribly surprised, you know, that Elon might be bold enough to take this step. Uh, but at the same time, you know, we we need um, 
in order for this to be more broadly accepted and maybe not so much viewed as speculation, but an astute capital allocation decision, we need to see people who are more widely viewed as uh, relatively conservative allocators of capital uh, make this move. But uh, that's going to take time. And uh, like you said, you know, a couple of years ago, Spencer, uh, when the banks were all, all viewing Bitcoin as sort of this... Um, you know, they're not going to touch it with a 10-foot pole because it, it was probably terrifying back then. Uh, and it seem, would seem like an irresponsible decision. It needs to, we need to have a couple of those uh, more, more conservative leaders take, take the, uh, the helm as far as um, buying Bitcoin on their balance sheets. Okay, so on that note, Spence, let me, let me give you or Mike the last word on this topic. You are assessing a fair value for Bitcoin and several other cryptocurrencies all the time. Does this move of corporations buying Bitcoin change your thinking? Does it set a floor on the, on the price of Bitcoin now that you've got corporate treasuries interested? There's two points I'd like to make. Um, one, uh, with Bitcoin and, and corporate treasuries and allocating, it's, there's only one cryptocurrency that's being talked about, right? It's Bitcoin. So I, I just, to the, from the crypto side of things, I just want everyone to, to realize that they're only talking about Bitcoin and I, you know, I would only, I would think that Ethereum would be the only other potential asset to even enter the conversation, yeah. you know, over the next year as far as allocating, because we know that Bitcoin and Ethereum are not securities, uh, as deemed by the SEC. So uh, I want to make that point very clear. And then the second point is, you know, the fair value of Bitcoin. Uh, you know, our take, we we do deeply root ourselves in the stock to flow model that we discussed in the previous episode, Simon. Um, and so I, I do think that we've overshot uh, the fair value of Bitcoin today, right? So I think we're a little ahead of schedule. Um, so, you know, these fundamental changes and you know, news uh, headlines, they've been a part of every single cycle uh, and they do push us into more exuberant areas and, and we do overshoot uh, our stock to flow model, but we always come back to it. Um, so I, I don't change, uh, you know, the statements about the, the, the floor for Bitcoin that I've made previously, um, you know, 10 and 20K make a lot of sense to me. You know, 20 being realistic, 10 being very surprising. Um, so I, I stand, I stand by, uh, you know, what we, we put together last month on price action in Bitcoin. But Mike, do you, uh, you want to add to, to that in any way? Yeah, I'll say, um, you know, the fair value of anything that's a, that's a tough one, right? Especially something like Bitcoin that, that moves in these cyclical waves. Um, so with the, you know, with the corporations and businesses coming on and, and, and buying now, um, it certainly brings in a new dynamic, right? Um, what what a lot of the conversations that we're having now is, so these aren't your retailers that are coming in, um, maybe to make a quick buck, maybe some of them are looking to come in just for the speculation and hype and, and, and earn a quick dollar. But typically um, these decisions are not, not made uh, rashly, right? So um, you have a whole bunch of buy-in from a large corporation that's looking to take a position um, to de-risk off of some of their uh, dollar exposure or, or, or maybe something else that, that other consideration they're having. But um, these are long-term decisions. Uh, they're not going to uh, sell their position at the next 10% drop. So we have new large, large buyers who are buying in the billions now rather than the thousands like your average person would. And they're looking to hold for the long term. So does that help smooth out some of the volatility? Does it help buy up, you know, scoop up when the, when the price dips, these guys come in and help support the price? Uh, yeah, I think we've seen a lot of that over the last several months. Um, I would, again, think I would it would continue, especially as more of these corporations come on. So it's a, it's a new way. We just have a new customer for Bitcoin. And, you know, 
we've had three, maybe four cycles now in Bitcoin. And in each one, you get a new sort of narrative and a new customer uh, involved. And this time, it's major high net worth individuals and it's corporations, whereas before it was um, retail Joes, um, crypto anarchists or libertarians or uh, in the early days, um, drug dealers or people looking out, working, uh, surfing the, the dark web. So um, it's, a, it's just a whole new frontier. And uh, I think uh, where Bitcoin goes and what its quote unquote fair value is, is what the, uh, the price determines. So we know that um, there's a fixed supply. So the only release valve is the price. So as more people get more uh, exuberant about this asset, uh, the price is going to overshoot and then uh, correct, just like we've seen before. But, you know, the same can be said with a lot of the equities going on these days, too. Right. So um, tough to for anything to trade on, quote unquote, fair value or its fundamentals at the moment. Yeah, and it's definitely true that the adjectives we use to describe the buyer base of Bitcoin has certainly changed over the last several years as yeah. well. Now, now, that brings us to, I think, the second topic that we want to talk about, which is that Bitcoin is much more readily available to a larger user base today. You don't have to be an anarchist that's figured out how to get a hold of Bitcoin. You can actually buy it through exchanges and brokerages. And one of those, the largest brokerage, Coinbase, is actually announced that it's now going to be going public through a direct listing. A direct listing is different than an initial public offering, which is what we've gotten used to with stocks, which means that insiders are going to be transferring their positions in the company and making them publicly available. And in essence, insiders will be cashing out and there's not money that's going to be put directly onto the balance sheet. It also gets rid of a lot of the, the inefficiencies of underwriters that we've seen with the traditional IPO. But to, just to put some context behind this, uh, in 2018, in its Series E round, Coinbase was valued at $8 billion. That was a private investing round. And there's already speculation that the upcoming direct listing, which many believe is going to happen in either late February or early March, could have a target valuation of a market cap of $50 billion. So that's spicy for a brokerage. But my first question, I think, is for uh, Mike, either you or Spence, is can you tell us a little bit about Coinbase and how that compares to other brokerages or other ways that people can get a hold of Bitcoin? Yeah. Uh, so when we spend a lot of time talking to people about crypto and every time I meet a newcomer, they generally already made a Coinbase account. So I think that's very interesting data for your audience, right? It, virtually every U.S. customer that we talk to uh, started their crypto journey with a Coinbase account. So the network effects around onboarding the newest people to crypto are very strong with Coinbase. Uh, now, uh, conversely, another trend that we see, especially within our community, is people that have used Coinbase before, used Coinbase for a while, and have developed a lot of expertise in crypto, generally get frustrated with the retail offering of their product. And then they churn and they go to other competitors. So that, that's another trend that we've seen uh, with people using uh, Coinbase's products and services from a retail side. Uh, I'd also add that um, when you hear about allocations to crypto uh, from corporations like Sailor and MicroStrategy or Elon and Tesla, a lot of times Coinbase is the company facilitating these institutional grade microtransactions uh, to acquire Bitcoin. So it seems like uh, Coinbase is a market leader, not only in uh, U.S. retail investors and traders, but the uh, institutional buying of Bitcoin for these corporations. So it seems like they've, they're building network effects there too. Um, so 
that's my my quick take on on Coinbase from a from a crypto user perspective. But Mike, what what are your thoughts? Yeah, so our impression or my impression of Coinbase is that so it is uh, U.S. centric. It is the trusted brand name in uh, crypto onboarding. Um, it's got a long tenure. I think it's uh, started around maybe 2016. A white combinator project. Um, kind of came right after or a bit after the whole Mount Gox debacle, which if your uh, customers aren't familiar with, was a very popular exchange in the early days of Bitcoin that totally imploded. And a lot of people lost a lot of money, a lot of controversy around it. But it really set Bitcoin back and, and um, led to the tarnished kind of image it had for a while in the early days. But so then comes along a super reputable, uh, U.S.-centric, uber-compliant um, exchange that only listed a few assets and had a great user experience um, and just made it super easy. And so it's kind of the front door to crypto for a lot of people. It's where um, when I got in, uh, was the first place I went. And as Ben said, we're now, you know, six years later or something like that. And it's still a lot of people's first introduction into uh, the market. Um, we recommend it on our site. It, it just makes it uh, super easy. And they, again, they're, they're very compliant. They work closely with U.S. regulators. So um, there, there's nothing shady going on uh, behind closed doors and um, they've never been hacked, which is another one. So when you're looking for is security and a trusted name, when you don't really know where else to go, if you're a new applicant or a, a new person to crypto. So um, that's kind of the niche they've carved out for themselves and it's worked very well, right? We just talked to, you know, in 2018, the market was down a little bit, but Coinbase's valuation at that time was 8 billion. Now we're in a bull market. Prices are much higher. Their users are, um, flooding in, much like we saw in 2017, and uh, it's doing wonders for that valuation. So I think they might be um, coming, uh, going public at the right time, uh, and certainly will capitalize. I've seen so we we mentioned the 50 billion dollar number, but also um, I've seen trading as high as uh, that would equate to 70, 75 billion. So uh, we're talking astronomical numbers, and basically everything that goes public, you know, right now is is uh, gold. So why would Coinbase be any different? Yeah, great point, Mike, that we don't know. We have a target price that we think it is at $50 billion, but it could be much higher than that in a direct listing because this is not the same rules as an IPO. Uh, Steve, before I hand it to you, I'd like to ask one more question to Spence, which is double-clicking on one of the points that you made that a lot of sophisticated uh, traders in cryptocurrencies have walked away from the Coinbase platform. I know that you said they have a retail yeah. presence, so they've got commissions that they're charging for placing yeah. the trades. But any more context on, on why sophisticated, sophisticated traders aren't happy with Bitcoin or are not happy with Coinbase out there? Yeah, the, the pattern that I've, I've heard in feedback is uh, that Coinbase will have outages at key times uh, for retail traders and investors. So when the market is either at a peak uh, in terms of price or at a low, and you know, like to capitalize on that buy or sell, uh, the exchange goes offline temporarily for retail investors and traders. Now, there's a lot of reasons why that could be happening, but the important part is to note that it's happening again and again and again. Um, and so those opportune times to buy or sell uh, aren't available for a lot of customers uh, that are using Coinbase. And I think that frustration is causing folks to switch. So that, that's the, the pattern that I've seen. Uh, as a reason why people are wanting to switch. And it's, it's something that they have not seemed to figure out just yet. So this is something that's been going on for a long time and it's well documented. Yeah, that's good to yeah, know. Yeah, and 
And one more point, sorry, uh, Simon, there's this, it, fees is also another a big one, right? Yeah. So Coinbase makes it easy for everybody, but they charge a premium on that. And so um, they have a higher fee structure than alternative. So once a user comes on, they learn the ropes uh, and they decide, okay, well, now I know what I'm doing and I'm a little bit more comfortable. Why am I paying so much? And also Coinbase doesn't list a lot of the long tail assets or maybe altcoins that people may want. And they also don't provide um, uh, the availability that uh, some of the options that advanced traders would be looking for, like leverage or option trading in order to kind of do some more sophisticated hedging and, and trading strategies. So it's just you kind of graduate past Coinbase sometimes when uh, you're looking for uh, a deeper altcoin market or more sophisticated trading strategies. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you guys: Is it still a percentage of the total of the total assets being traded? I, I used Coinbase a couple of years ago, and I think it was charging one and a half percent. Which, if you're only getting in and out with a, you know a couple of thousand dollars, maybe that's not a huge deal. But if you're a sophisticated trader that's trading the kind of money, even like you know Elon's trading, there's no way that one and a half percent is going to be allowed for something. Is it still a percentage of the total trade, or have they changed the way that they're making uh, money on the commissions these days? Yeah, with, with the big the big U.S. exchanges, the pattern is you've got a super user-friendly product with a high commission. You know, that's what Mike just touched on, and that's what you experienced, Simon. And they typically have a, a more professional uh, interface that they'll offer the user. You know, Gemini does this, Coinbase does this, you know, kind of like a pro version or an active trader version uh, where you can trade with less fees. Um, but uh, the, you know, even the pro version, right, when you look at the fee structure, there's, there's going to be an opportunity to switch uh, and save on your commissions. Um, and so that's, you know, that's to touch on Mike's point, Mike's point, that's, that's what people are doing. You know, they're moving to more competitive fee structures. Let's put an equity spin on this too, Steve, because in our markets, we've seen uh, this playing out for years. We've seen right. all the large brokerages that are consolidating to try to get as low of fees as possible. In fact, most of them are now offering zero commissions for mm -hmm. trading. Um, and we've seen, you know, the large get bigger. Schwab has been very acquisitive in, in buying up brokerages. And Schwab is now a $100 billion company. Right. When we're talking about Coinbase, you know, the first uh, publicly traded crypto exchange going going public at $50 billion, $75 billion, maybe, Mike. I mean, this is putting it in the league with the big boys of equity trading. Steve, what do you think about the valuation for Coinbase? And is this interesting to you as an equity investor? Um, it, it's steep, but it's not surprising. Uh, $50 billion, I, I won't be surprised if it surges up to 75 or even 100 as people you know, really pile in uh, because they're excited and we're still at an early stage and the market is very much a forward-looking machine that way. Um, and, you know, they've got some impressive numbers kind of backing them. You know, I think they, the last I checked, it was a little over 90 billion in assets on the platform and 43 million active verified users. Um, so, I mean, impressive to that end, but it's also, we shouldn't, fail to appreciate the scale, the relative scale of uh, brokerages like Schwab. I think last time I looked, yeah, their market cap was around 108 billion. And uh, I think they had 4.1 trillion in assets uh, on their platform. And, but the interesting thing is when you look at a, you know, a business like Schwab, uh, they also only had 14.1 million um, brokerage accounts active. Uh, last I checked. So, I mean, the average size of those brokerage accounts is obviously significantly larger, but uh, it is interesting that Coinbase um, has you know, more than twice, almost three times as many users um, 
as Schwab has brokerage accounts, but the assets on their platform is astronomically larger on Schwab. Um, and I think that will change, you know, as, as cryptocurrency enjoys some validation in the coming years. Uh, but, you know, when you're looking at only 90 billion a- in assets on the platform right now, um, this is something we saw kind of unfold with Robinhood and people talking about um, their uh, potential IPO in the coming year or a direct listing or a SPAC or however they decide to choose, you know, uh, to do this. Um, but Robinhood, you know, endured uh, some, they, they have growing pains often. They have downtime for retail traders that frustrates people. Uh, and then they have situations like with the GameStop, uh, I don't know, do we just describe it as a debacle? But uh, with the whole would. situation <laughs> uh, where they, you know, the, the cost of fulfilling trades was so incredibly high because of what their clearinghouses were requesting uh, for assets to back it, that, you know, you had Mark Cuban coming on to explain to the whole uh, Reddit slash GameStop crowd, hey, the reason... Um, you know, that Robinhood wasn't able to, to really enable what you wanted to do. And the reason they went down and restricted trading was because they had to go raise another $3 billion. And that's, you know, pennies. It's a penance, you know, c- compared to what Schwab could, you know, with 4.1 trillion in assets or whatever they have on their balance sheet or uh, assets on the platform. Um, it, it's, it's such a small amount for a really large trader. And I think because we look at these names, we often don't appreciate the true scale that uh, companies like Charles Schwab uh, have. And uh, they are so enormous. And uh, I think Coinbase can get there. And uh, $50 billion is a, a decent starting point. Uh, but it's going to look you know, like you're, you're, you're looking at these really, really richly valued SaaS stocks, for example. And you say, you know, what's their revenue right now? Uh, you know, their recurring revenue and, and yeah, they're growing really fast, but they're small. And uh, I think growth rates are going to be um, uh, crucial to determining what kind of premium valuation we can continue to put on Coinbase once it's public. Yeah, I think that's similar to my key point as well, Steve, which is you mentioned Robinhood, which is coming under a lot of fire lately because of payment for order flow and the way that that company makes its money. It's not charging you commissions, but it is getting it behind the scenes when it's routing those orders to high frequency traders and then taking a portion of the spread. You're not aware that you're paying when you're actually placing those trades. Yeah. Uh, But if you're a larger uh, consolidated brokerage in equities, that's not as big of a deal because if you're Charles Schwab and you need to cut your commissions, you've still got advisory services. Uh, And if you're Fidelity, you know, you don't mind about cutting commissions because you still got target date funds that you're charging a percentage of of assets under management for. Uh, now, this is really interesting that, that Spence and Mike have mentioned that Coinbase also has those ancillary services, uh, which are more of kind of consulting and guiding and taking uh, a portion of fees for that rather than just the trading itself. I think that there's a lot of people that need that kind of guidance in cryptocurrency right now. And as we start seeing these platforms mature, more volume picking up because it's going to the mass market, that would be something as, an, as a potential investor in Coinbase, I would be really interested to see outside of the commissions where they're making their money. And see, that's taken decades for the brokerages to do, right? I mean, you know, I, 401k plans came into play and then we had Roth IRA plans. And I mean, this yeah. is kind of the result of regulatory changes. And I, I would be very interested to see how that plays out. Uh, Mike and Spence, any other thoughts on this topic? Yeah, I'd like to think out loud with y'all for a second. So, when we talk about Coinbase, an important thing to think about is that you can physically pull your crypto off of the exchange and custody it. 
right? So they're, they're an actual cryptocurrency marketplace and exchange for physical crypto, right? It's a digital asset, but you can physically pull it off the exchange. But it's like Robinhood and other places where you can paper trade crypto. You never actually get control of your cryptocurrency. So I guess I'm curious from the equity side of things, what, what we might see happen is more traditional brokerages offering uh, you know, a paper trading crypto equivalent or maybe even uh, venturing into allowing you to physically pull your cryptocurrency out of the brokerage. Yeah. And I just, if we fast forward to this thing, like, well, how do we think that's going to affect the market, right? As the question, thinking out loud, right? Has Coinbase and, and other cryptocurrency exchanges built enough of a moat around digital assets where they've got that specialization in a five-year, six-year head start? Or uh, could we see, you know, these more traditional brokerages venturing out into the you know, quote unquote crypto land and, and trying to, you know, develop those services in house and develop that expertise in house and actually allow people to use Schwab to, for example, to physically acquire crypto. Yeah. yeah. I think that's really, that's an interesting point because, you know, you do have, I think Schwab allows people to trade Bitcoin futures, for example. And uh, a lot of them do have uh, sort of platforms to allow people to do that. Um, but I also think, you know, Coinbase, the head start, and as a kind of a pure play on this niche, uh, they're going to view any sort of um, efforts by these larger brokerages to sort of muscle into their, their niche as a validating effort. And they say, you know, this only helps us in that sense. And that's how they'll argue it. But it's also a risk that I think we really need to appreciate uh, as investors, as you know, as we consider buying shares of Coinbase, uh, is that you know there there is going to be some risk um, from larger brokerages coming in because they have all this infrastructure established, and uh, it, it won't be—I don't want to say it won't be difficult uh, for them to get into it. Um, but Coinbase does have an advantage in that it's it's got the name, and if people are saying, "Well, I, I'm not really sure," I think there's going to be a lot of people. Uh, you know, like you said, on, on their traditional brokerage accounts, you say, well, I'm, I'm not really sure if I can do this uh, with my current brokerage account. So they're going to go open a separate Coinbase account as well. Uh, and they may you know, realize later on, once they kind of learn the ropes, um, that they can go back and, and do that again. But uh, I, I think it's, it's going to just pour gas on the fire uh, for Coinbase as more large brokerages sort of validate uh, what they're doing. I also think that a lot of the behind the scenes piping, even though it's pretty boring when you talk about the infrastructure is actually very important. As mm -hmm. Steve talked about the clearing houses earlier, I mean, Intercontinental Exchange owns the New York Stock Exchange. They have their own embedded clearinghouse. Robinhood does not. And so what did Robinhood have to do when the clearinghouse said, you can't place these trades anymore unless you're going to yeah. pay us this much money to transfer the title between the buyer and the seller? They said, okay, we're not allowing any more selling of GameStop. I mean, that was somebody behind the scenes running the infrastructure saying you can't do that. Mention the options exchange. I mean, those are mostly taking place options today on CME or SIBO. I mean, there's still exchanges that are built out that, are, that institutions are tapping into. I mean, that's something I think that's going to be really interesting for crypto is who's going to build it themselves uh, and how much influence do they have against the other people that want to get access to it. It's not simple holding digital, co digital tokens and currencies, right? Right. No, it's not yeah, so. not at all. I'll, I'll uh, chime in there just for a bit. That's one of the biggest obstacles and hurdles for these institutions and why we've, you know, the, in the crypto land, we've been talking about institutions are coming. They're coming um, since probably 2016, 2017. And 
really we've kind of started to see that proliferation uh, starting uh, back half of last year. And uh, the issue was they just weren't able to, well, one, they couldn't hardly understand it, right? It took some understanding to get over the learning curve. But once they were comfortable with it, they couldn't, um, they couldn't custody it. Uh, the legacy infrastructure is not built for this digital bear asset that you take control of yourself. So these, uh, these institutions needed to learn, okay, well, if I'm going to buy a hundred million dollars worth of Bitcoin, I can't leave it on an exchange that doesn't, that's, uh, hasn't been thoroughly audited or has a closed book system that I don't trust, or, um, are they going to keep it on a hardware wallet and who's going to know the code, uh, the, the key phrase to that. And so there was a lot that needs to be built out. And luckily, um, the space is only getting more mature, only getting better. We're getting custody solutions where, um, Corporations can now have multi-signature wallets where you have you can split the keys so no one person can control it all. But it, it, it's getting there is uh, what I'm saying, and so it's it's really all coming together, and uh, that's why we're starting to see this this flood of interest, especially um, from large players. Um, you know, so one thing where my head went when Spencer you know brought his question, we talked about the competition to Coinbase from the traditional brokerages, but kind of where my head uh, goes being in the crypto land is that uh, they have a different competitor coming up and that's called decentralized exchanges, uh, DEXs for short. And so what this is, is another exchange or an order book. Um, and rather than having a company in the middle that settles the buys and sells, um, it's just lines of code that execute automatically. There's no, so it's very um, compatible with the cryptocurrency ethos that you remove the intermediaries, uh, you remove the middlemen and, um, 2020 was a breakout year for these. The technology finally got there. The interest was there. Um, we have probably a half dozen that do over uh, a billion a day in volume. And the largest one is called Uniswap, which um, has been a breakout star this year. And in fact, this just simple project that was coded up two years ago um, did more daily volume uh, on a day in December than Coinbase did. So um, that was a big watershed moment, a big breakthrough that hey, these things um, do work. Uh, the fees right now are quite high. So, and there is a learning curve for, it's more for the crypto native people, but um, it's only getting better. So, I mean, a year ago, uh, they didn't, they made up 0% of the trading volume in the cryptocurrency space. And now um, they're chipping away at 1% of the total volume throughout 2020. And that number will certainly grow uh, next year. So that's why I, I think I mentioned earlier, I think Coinbase might be going public at just the right time with Bitcoin prices going. Uh, and if they wait any longer, um, these, de these decentralized alternatives may um, uh, start to catch on. And then uh, it, it, it becomes curious as to how much market share do they eat from Coinbase going forward. It's a great point, Mike. You know, when we talked earlier about the problem of a centralized exchange and it shutting down over and over again in a pattern, right? Decentralized exchanges can help solve that problem. Uh, like you said, they're distributed. Uh, so you know, the world's thinking about Coinbase's direct listing and, you know, in the crypto land, like Mike brought up, we're already thinking about decentralized exchanges, right? So that fast forward, right? We, we might be talking about DEXs in a few years as a common thing. Um, but like Mike highlighted with Uniswap, it, that peak day in December, that probably was one of the days that Coinbase went down, right? And then Uniswap, <laughs> Uniswap ate up that volume. I wouldn't be surprised if that coincided. Yeah. And we bring it full circle, Steve. I'm actually going to retract my reckless prediction from 2021. Uh, a couple of months ago, we said, what was something crazy that you could see happening this year? 
my reckless prediction was that Schwab was going to make an attempt and actually succeed at buying Coinbase uh, because it wanted access to this new market. But now that we're talking in terms of $50 billion, $75 billion valuation for, for Coinbase right out of the gate, right. that's out of touch. That's out of touch for, for Schwab, who's at $100 billion, even if it has gone out and uh, bought a possibly. lot of other brokerages. Uh, I, I, uh, I actually, I have to express my admiration for Schwab's power move. Uh, when was it? In 2019, uh, Robinhood basically, they saw the writing on the wall, uh, Schwab did, uh, when it came to, to no commission trading. And they said, everyone's going here, let's drop this axe. And they said, Schwab is moving to zero commission trading. And all the other brokerages plunged because I think it only, um, Schwab was only collecting maybe five or 7% of its, its revenue from uh, actual you know, commissions on stock trades, whereas like companies like TD Ameritrade were like 15 or 25%. So their stocks crashed, Schwab's like boop, just a little bit. And then Schwab a couple of weeks later says, hey, we're acquiring TD Ameritrade. Like it was this <laughs> right. amazing move, just this power play. And uh, I think they closed on it. Uh, yeah, not too much later, but uh, holy cow. Um, so you kind of wonder if, uh, if Schwab could could make a similar move uh, going forward if they see uh, some area to undercut a competitor and then buy them on their weakness. Uh, they're, they're, they're sharp that way. So uh, we can't rule it out completely, but uh, right now it makes it a lot less likely, I'll agree. We've maybe got maybe one, one or two more minutes here. Uh, Spence and Mike, anything else that I guess is, is really on your radar right now? We will be having these conversations every month, but just to spot up perhaps the next one that we'll be talking about. Is there anything else in crypto world that we should be paying attention to? I'd like to highlight the, the patterns that we've talked about and summarize them. So uh, to, to kind of encapsulate one of Mike's points, these are one-way trades that these corporations are making, right? They're not buying Bitcoin to speculate, they're buying Bitcoin because they want to hold it on their balance sheet for an extended period of time. And then these may not be one-time transactions either. Right. So when you look at MicroStrategy, they have a treasury reserve policy where they allocate to Bitcoin on a regular basis. Um, and then with Tesla, we don't know if this is their only allocation to Bitcoin in 2021. They may buy more. Um, so I just want to make those two points that even if we're limited to talk about these two organizations at this time, these may not be Well, these are not the only only times that they're allocating to Bitcoin. And we expect more and more companies to follow their leadership um, as we charge ahead into 2021. Mike, what's on your mind? Mike, do you have any any additional points? Dexes was a great yeah. one. Like to, yeah. Right. And I mean, there, there's so much to look forward to, obviously, in the crypto space. That's why Spence and I love it so much is that there's never a dull moment. So it's uh, hard to pinpoint one. I mean, obviously, we'll continue to monitor the uh, the inflow of corporations to buying Bitcoin. I guess one thing maybe we'll catch ourselves talking about later in the year is, are they just buying Bitcoin? Because I, I think in Tesla's SEC filing, they kind of, left a little wiggle room that said they were they had the ability to buy digital assets um so they could purchase uh something else like an ethereum or a stable coin potentially um it'd be curious to to see um beyond that um you know we talked a lot about coinbase uh and their ipo um i think it's important to note again we said this is the biggest exchange in the u.s and really if you look on a global market coinbase only is 10, 15% maybe of the spot market. So there's much bigger players out there with Binance being uh, the world's biggest exchange. So there are much, much potentially bigger companies um, out there. But I think uh, Coinbase is well positioned. They're going to do incredibly well with their IPO because being kind of the first name brand to go public, uh, a lot of people are going to use them as an avenue to get exposure. 
uh, to crypto in general. If you don't want to just outright buy Bitcoin, then you can do go the picks and shovel route and, and buy uh, something like Coinbase. So I think they'll they'll be doing great. And um, the whole space, I, I'm very bullish on 2021. A lot of good stuff coming out of the pipeline. And so these conversations, I welcome them. Uh, we're going to have a lot to talk about. Sounds good, Mike. Steve, any final thoughts from you? No, I think I'm good. Yep. And I think this is a, I really enjoy these conversations. You know, we kind of are finding the middle ground between equities and, and cryptocurrencies and what this means as a whole for investors. Uh, one thing I'd like to spot us up for next month to talk about is we talked about the big corporations on this call. Let's talk about some retail investors on the next call. We've seen quite a bit with GameStop this last month. How is that going to impact cryptocurrency markets as well? So spotting that up for our conversation coming up in March, a huge, thank to, huge thanks to the guests on this call, Spence and Mike, as well as uh, Steve, my colleague at Seven Investing. We really appreciate you tuning in. We're really looking forward to more of these in the future. And thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.